0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 15. Last week, I continued working through Joshua 11, covering the waters of Merom, the places called Mizrephath Maim, Mount Holoch, and bel Gad. All places that would be conquered by the Israelites, led at the time by Joshua, and sometimes shortly after arriving west of the Jordan in Canaan. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm beginning with the next place I haven't covered, Anab. And with that, let's get started. Before getting to that place, I need to level set with the last two paragraphs in chapter 11, as they provide a neat summary of all that Joshua did. So, Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negeb in all the land of Goshen, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the hill country of Israel and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Belgad, in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, he took all their kings, struck them down, and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a town that made peace with the Israelites except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all were taken in the battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, so that they would come against Israel in battle, in order that they might be utterly destroyed, and might receive no mercy, but be exterminated, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. At that time Joshua came and wiped out the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Deber, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from the hill country of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their towns. None of the Anakim was left in the land of the Israelites. Some remained only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod. So, Joshua took the whole land, according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest for war. While I've covered most of these places, it does present two that are new, of course Anab, then Ashdod. Anab, sometimes rendered as Anav, with a V as in Victor, is about ten miles sixteen kilometers south southwest of Hebron. This places it in southern Canaan, to the west of the Dead Sea. So, between that Saline body and the Mediterranean coast, what's thought to be the site has uncovered archaeological ruins. Other than these ruins, there really isn't anything a consequence in the outside record. Which parallels the biblical text, as it's only mentioned in Joshua, twice. Once in chapter 11, where it's used as a geographic reference of the extent of the land conquered by Joshua. It merited another mention in chapter 15 as being in the territory allotted to the tribe of Judah, specifically in an area frequently referred to as the hill country. And that's the little that's known about Anab. Next up is Ashdod, which provides me with a little more material. This mention in Joshua is the first appearance of Ashdod in the biblical text. Like Anab, Joshua chapter 15 would relay that it was allotted to the tribe of Judah. And this presents an interesting point, one that has a bearing on the later story. It should have gone to Judah, but since the giant Anakim remained there, it's likely Joshua, and the Israelites from that period, did not conquer or capture the town. This is confirmed in 1 Samuel 6, when the town was controlled by the Philistines. Backing up a chapter in 1 Samuel 5, the townsfolk make another appearance. It was in this part of the narrative that the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites. From the text, when the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. They then took the Ark into the house of Dagon and placed it beside Dagon's idol. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face to the ground before the ark. So, they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off from the rest of the idol, and were lying upon the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left on the idol. This is why the priest of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not step on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy upon the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and struck them with tumors, or boils, or maybe even rats, in Ashdod and the surrounding territory. The particular affliction is dependent on the translation in the specific source text. Whichever it was, what it was, wasn't pleasant. When the inhabitants of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The Ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is heavy on us and on our god Dagon. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the Ark of the God of Israel? The inhabitants of Gath replied, Let the ark of God be moved unto us. So, they moved the ark from Ashdod to Gath. I touched on this episode in one of the episodes when I covered the Philistines, but skimmed over Ashdod at that point. This part of the text indicates that while the Israelites controlled most of Canaan from the time when they crossed the Jordan, around 1250 BC, Ashdod along with other Philistine cities, would remain in Philistine hands for the next 250 years or so. King David, at some point later, would defeat the Philistines, and Ashdod, along with other cities in the region that would all finally come under the control of the United Kingdom of Israel, but it wasn't to last. There is a mention in Isaiah 20, but I'll get to that when I cover the outside record. Later in the text, Ashdod makes another appearance, this time when Uzziah was the king of Judah. This would place it between 783 and 742 BC. According to the text, all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king to succeed his father, Amaziah. He rebuilt Ilith and restored it to Judah. Uzziah went out and made war against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath, and the wall of Jabna, and the wall of Ashdod. He built the cities in the territory of Ashdod, and elsewhere among the Philistines. The next many books of the Old Testament have a smattering of references to the city, but most are completely within the context of using it as a geographic reference, at least until the book of Nehemiah. Here are found two mentions of the city. The first was while the book's author and namesake was busy repairing the wall of the city of Jerusalem. This would have been when the region was under the control of the Persians, in the mid-5th century BC. According to the text, when Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, Ammonites, and the Ashdites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, and all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem, and to cause confusion in it. Not much can really be made from this, except that all of these cities, including Ashdod, were under Persian control, but that control seemed to be rather loose. Within the large empires of the period, such an arrangement was rather typical. As for why Ashdod was brought up in this conversation, it was one of the closest Philistine cities to Jerusalem. The next mention in Nehemiah gives a bit more cultural insight into the period. With Nehemiah narrating, he tells the reader that he saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah but spoke the language of various peoples. And I contended with them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. What's curious to me is that these people, who had lived in close proximity to each other, at this point close to 800 years, still spoke different languages. The last mention I'll mention is in the book of Zechariah. Keep in mind that this prophet recorded his words in the 6th century BC. So, while this book is typically many books after Nehemiah, in the usual Old Testament order, the thoughts and events recorded occurred about 100 years earlier. Zechariah 9 is a list of the enemies of the Jewish people combined with curses the prophet bestows on each. In the case of Ashdod, it's prophesied that a mongrel people shall settle in Ashdod, and God and Zechariah will make an end to the pride of Philistia. So, at this point in the history of Philistia, Ashdod was likely the most prominent of their cities. And that's it in the Old Testament. There are no mentions in the New, maybe. Acts chapter 8 does include a town named Azotis, which some speculate is a later name for Ashdod, but in reality, this isn't much more than speculation, though Azotis is the Greek form of Ashdod, so the theory does hold some water. This town, Azotis, was mentioned in a few other places, mostly in the book of 1 Maccabees, which I haven't covered in a while. As a reminder, This text dates to about the 2nd century BC and is sourced from the Greek Septuagint, with the original Hebrew text having been lost. Catholics, along with the Greek and Eastern Orthodox churches, consider it to be canonical, but neither Protestants nor any major branches of Judaism do not, though some Protestants consider it to be an apocryphal book. Because of this, It's included in the text of the New Revised Standard Version I used for the podcast, with that translation duly noting the status I just covered. All of this finally gets me to the outside record. Archaeological findings dating to the Neolithic era have been uncovered, but this was a meager three-stone tools. The conclusions from this are extremely minimal. While these tools could have been in use at the site as early as about 10,000 BC, the fact that there were only three found tend to indicate something else, that they were likely left there at a later date, and the place that would become the city was not regularly inhabited that early. There are many more findings dating to the Bronze Age. This is the least surprising thing of all, as that was just before when the Israelites returned and the city is mentioned in Joshua. As has been the trend of Canaanite cities of that time, Ashdod was built on a hill, a tell, making it more defendable than if it had been built on the nearby flat plain. The dating of the artifacts from the Bronze Age places the earliest somewhat large occupation around the 17th century BC, which would mean about when Jacob and family were traveling to Egypt and close to 500 years before the Israelites would complete their exodus journey and cross the Jordan. It was about this time that the city shows evidence of a wall, along with two gated entrances. Later, Ugaritic texts mention the city, with these texts dating to the same period. So, in the mid-2nd millennium B.C., The texts of the text show the city to be a focal point for purple-dyed woolen fabric and garments, likely the same Tyrian purple I covered in depth a few episodes ago. A couple of centuries later, towards the end of the 13th century BC, the city appears to have been taken by the Sea Peoples. This was about when the Israelites would show up and record what was mentioned at the end of Joshua 11 that the Enakim giants still lived in the city. The rule of the Sea Peoples, thought to be one and the same as the Philistines, would bring great prosperity to the city, to the point that it was one of the five cities of the Philistine Pentapolis, and was important enough that it earned the right to house the Ark of the Covenant, after it was captured from the Israelites, like I covered earlier. The other cities of the Pentapolis were Ashkelon and Gaza on the coast, and Ekron and Gath in the interior regions. Fast forwarding a few hundred years, around 950 BC, the city would be destroyed by the Egyptians, at the time ruled by Pharaoh Siamun. This was during the Third Intermediate Period and the 21st Dynasty. I covered this pharaoh a few episodes ago. He's the ruler thought to have given his daughter to Solomon to marry, found in 1 Kings 3. A few chapters later, in 1 Kings 9, the Pharaoh would capture the Canaanite city of Gezer and give it to Solomon as a dowry. The sacking of Ashdod may have been part of this conquest, though there's no mention of it being given to Solomon. Do recall that this would have been in the period between when King David David. Solomon's father captured Ashdod, and when it was lost, only to be recaptured a few hundred years later by the Judean king Uzziah. While this doesn't completely clear up what happened in Ashdod and who ruled it in these years, it does seem to indicate that the Egyptians were involved for some of the period, and that it had been independent before they came along, and possibly after. There's also another theory and that's that after it was captured and razed by the Egyptians, it was abandoned, not being rebuilt until at least as late as 815 BC. Shortly after this date, the Neo-Assyrians would invade and control the region. Then, in the mid-8th century BC, the city would lead a revolt against the Assyrians, with the Philistines, Judeans, Edomites, and Moabites joining the fight on their side. During this period, it appears that another Philistine city, Gath, was being controlled by Ashdod. The Neo-Assyrian king Sargon II would send a general to lead the fight. This was referenced in Isaiah 20, which reads, In the year that the commander-in-chief, who was sent by King Sargon of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and took it, in the King James, this general is given a name. Tartan. Isaiah then foretells the defeat of the Egyptians and Ethiopians. A couple of hundred years would pass, until the late 7th century BC, when it was said that Egypt besieged the city for 29 years, at least according to the 5th century BC Greek historian Herodotus. How a 29-year siege was even possible was not mentioned in his writings. In my mind, he was telling of a nearly 30-year Egyptian control of the city, and something was lost in translation. It's thought that the mention of Ashdod in the little-referenced Old Testament book of Zephaniah may refer to the siege. There it reads, Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon. But, to make that conclusion, you have to really read between the lines. As for this book and I don't think I've ever mentioned it before. It was authored by its namesake, one of the twelve minor prophets whose words are recorded at the end of the Old Testament. He prophesied during the early part of the reign of the Judean king, Josiah, who ruled between 640 and 609 B.C. But his prophecy was before Josiah's reforms, which occurred around 621 B.C. Ashdod, like all of the other cities in the region, would be defeated by Nebuchadnezzar in 605 BC. It would be rebuilt by the Persians in 539 BC, then reconquered by Alexander in 332, beginning a period of Greek control over the city and region. This is when it's thought the city's name was changed to Azotus and leads to the potential reference in the Book of Acts. While under Greek control, the town once again flourished, at least until the Hasmonean Uprising, a.k.a. the Maccabean Revolt, between 167 and 160 B.C. The record shows that during the rebellion, Judas Maccabeus gained control of the city and laid waste to it, though that does not mean the city was abandoned, because in 147 B.C., Judas' brother Jonathan captured Ashdod again and this time destroyed the Temple of Dagon. Some believe this was the same temple mentioned in 1 Samuel, where the Ark was temporarily kept. All of this gets me to the Roman period. The Maccabean revolts led to a near-complete destruction of the city. Roman general Pompey would restore its independence, though only in a limited fashion, as it did remain part of the Roman Empire. He would do the same for several other nearby coastal cities. This led to an economic uptick in the city and region. Then, a few years later, in 55 BC, more fighting hit, with the city bearing the brunt of the destruction, though not to the extent of that seen in the Maccabean revolts. As the fighting subsided, Roman general Gabinius helped rebuild the wall around Ashdod as he did with several other regional cities that had been left without protective walls. In 30 BC, Ashdod came under the control of King Herod the Great. Herod would give the city to his sister Salome. It would remain in her family through the time of Christ. During the 1st century AD First Jewish-Roman War, Emperor Vespasian would have a Roman garrison stationed in the city. The thinking is that this was likely to keep a large Jewish population who resided there under control. Shortly after this, 2nd century writer Ptolemy would describe it as a maritime city. Do note that it's about 4 miles, 6 kilometers from the coast. Josephus would do the same, though in other writings he said it was inland. This may have been due to two different places sharing the name which is also why there is a small bit of uncertainty around the city named in the Book of Acts. In order to help clarify the situation, a quick sidebar on the geography of the city. Ashdod is about 33 miles, 53 kilometers to the west of Jerusalem. The other Philistine city of Ashkelon is about 12 miles, 20 kilometers to the south. The modern city is large enough that it covers what used to be two different cities, One on the coast and the other a few miles inland. When they were two distinct cities, so throughout the era that I've covered thus far, given their proximity, they were highly connected. Of course, being on the coast, trade would play a large role in the affairs of the city, but that was hampered slightly by the lack of a natural harbor. The 6th century Madaba map depicts both cities. Back in the history, the Roman Empire slowly morphed into the Byzantine, who would continue to control the city until the invading Muslims in the 7th century. But before that, around 500 AD, either a church or monastery was built there. After the Muslims took charge, the building fell into disrepair and disappeared until it was uncovered by archaeologists in 2017. The city would trade hands back and forth between the Muslims and Crusaders, until the Europeans were driven out of the region in the 13th century. After that, you should know by now what happened. The Muslims, Ottomans, and finally, following World War I, the British, as part of mandatory Palestine. When the nation of Israel was established following World War II, Ashdod was within the territory allotted to it, but just barely. Of course, there was an immediate war, with the Egyptians almost instantly seizing the town. It would become the northernmost place they occupied. After about five months of fighting, the fledgling Israeli army forced the Egyptians to withdraw, and the Israelis regained the city. A year later, the armistice agreement cemented their control, but the population had been driven away due to the half-year battle. The Israelis would completely rebuild it, essentially raising the ruins and master planning the city. About 15 years later, an artificial harbor was built which allowed a port. And that's the city of Ashdod, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the history of the people, places, and things found in the book of Joshua. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.